my kind of personal belief is that capitalism just diverted too much to focusing on profit and not looking at those wider impacts over the last 50 years. And we need to kind of change capitalism back to be a bit more kind of inclusive in nature. Purpose Tea Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Purpose Tea with Baytrust CEO, Alistair Rhodes. Baytrust is one of 12 endowed foundations making a positive difference to their communities. They do this through grant making and other means. The Baytrust area focus is the Bay of Plenty, which is found on New Zealand's eastern side of its North Island. It includes cities like Tauranga, Rotorua, as well as smaller enclaves like Turangi. Alistair is the chair of Impact Investment Network. He has a real passion for impact investing. You'll hear his background in the commercial sector, particularly around air travel. But I just ask you, before we jump into the show, if you're on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, whatever platform you're on, if you could please hit follow, it really helps me to get the message out there. Enjoy. This episode of Purposely was brought to you by Benevity, all-in-one software solution that benefits employees, customers, nonprofits, and society. Let's get back to the show. Alistair Rhodes, welcome to Purposely Podcast. Kia ora and welcome. It's great to be here, Mark. You're the CEO of Bay Trust. It's one of 12 community trusts in in Aotearoa. What's its mission? What's its purpose? Yeah, so the uh, community trust model is quite unique around the world, but effectively it came out of the... uh, community savings banks. So we had a whole bunch of community savings banks, which was a UK kind of based model, which was set up in New Zealand. And as part of the banking deregulation in the late 80s, the government wanted to get more capital into the banking sector. So those community-owned savings banks were effectively sold to commercial banks like the Westpac, etc., offshore. And the funds from those sales were actually put into these perpetual trusts. So 12 trusts, as you mentioned, and, you know, our, basically our trust seeds, says, you know, we're there to benefit our region. So very wide, very kind of broad base, but these perpetual kind of trusts that are there to kind of benefit the regions out of the banking deregulation days. Yeah, and Bay Trust is, is focused on the Bay of Plenty. So I'm just getting an idea of, of borders. So does that sort of go up to border with Waikato? We're talking about the eastern side of the North Island and then down this and bordering with... Um, the Hawke's Bay, is that, is that as far as it stretches? Effectively. So, you know, we have the major metropolitan areas of Taranga, uh, Rotorua, Whakatani and Taupo in our kind of region. So our definition of Bay of Plenty was based on the trust bank boundaries at that time. So it's a little bit different to everyone else. But yeah, our trust that border us, the uh, trust Waikato, or the Waikato kind of side in Hawke's Bay, Eastern and Central Trust, um, down that end of the country as well. Wonderful. And so I think in our, in our region, about 350,000 people reside in our region. And effectively... Everyone that resides in our region is our beneficiary. And so that's to some extent means under kind of trust law, we need to all actually, you know, recognize that they're all beneficiaries and understand actually how, do we, how we can be equitable across those beneficiaries as well. Yeah. And, and half of those people living in Haranga, Taranga, just or almost half of those people. Yeah. So, yeah, and that's where you guys are based? Yeah, yeah. So pretty much half our uh, population is based in the Western Bay of Plenty, which includes Taranga. And it's a, and, you know, our head office is based here, but we get around the region a lot. And it's a very diverse region. So, you know, we've got pockets of the most deprived parts of New Zealand, especially around Eastern Bay of Plenty, to pockets of extreme wealth, for example, Mount Monganui around Taranga. So very diverse kind of region in terms of different challenges and needs. But, you know, to some extent across the board, you know, housing is a challenge wherever we're going to go. Environmental issues and climate change is a challenge wherever we go. They're just slightly different in different parts of our region. Yeah, and so you guys are an endowed foundation. You haven't got 
any new inflows of money. So you don't do fundraising as such, but you, you know, you benefit from investment, you benefit from, you know, like how your funds are managed, the interest that you derive. What are the unique elements of, of running an endowed foundation? Because you will go into your backstory, but relatively new for you when you joined. But what are the sort of unique elements of being a leader in that context? Yeah, so we are endowed foundation. So when we were set up, we effectively had a trust fund that was a size around $90 million, and that was about 25, 30 years ago, and that's grown to $250 million. So some of the unique things is that we need to be fair to our current beneficiaries, but also fair to those future beneficiaries as well. So we look to dr- grow our trust fund in size based in, you know, growing in alignment with inflation, growing in alignment with kind of population cr- increases. And that's one way we kind of look at it to ensure we're kind of equitable current versus kind of future beneficiaries. So that's, you know, kind of an interesting, unique bit of the model. As you said, um, we don't, you know, she's seeking kind of further funding. So we've got our own you know, investment fund and it's a matter of just growing that, but growing it equitably and making sure we're granting sufficient into our community each year that, you know, we can, you know, look after those current and future beneficiaries at the same time. And crucially, the governance of, of such assets is really important, isn't it? Because there's a unique model when it comes to community trust. So the government ultimately has the say on who that trustee board will, and they they, they serve terms as well, yeah. don't they? Give us a bit of a flavour of how it's governed. Yeah, so like our governance model, when we were first set up back 30 years ago, effectively we were a distribution committee for our banking, um, from a, for a banking dividend. So it was set up as a distribution kind of committee trustee. We've just reviewed that in the last three or four years and updated that. So effectively what we've got now is it's quite a complex you know beast to kind of govern to some extent so we've got 250 millions of investments so we must have trustees with investment experience but we also must have trustees that really represent the diversity of our community and understanding under you know you know government and philanthropy and actually how we do those distributions as well so you're right so because we came out of the banking deregulation days um, our settler at the time was the minister of finance and so a hangover from that is the Minister of Finance or the Associate Minister of Finance in New Zealand is still looks after effectively our trustee appointment process. They're generally appointed on four-year terms. So one of the good things about our model is, yeah, a four-year term I think works really well and then generally appointed for another term of four years. So we've got 12 trustees and they're staggered that appointment process. So generally each year we might have kind of two coming up in terms of vacancies or two coming up in terms of renewal. And I think that works well. You know, eight years in the trust means that we have that kind of refresh coming through. And as you said, you know, our Minister of Finance, so it is a political appointment process, but we've actually really strengthened our trust deed and said things like we must have sufficient investment experience, we must actually have sufficient diversity in our communities. And that means that the political process needs to still comply with our trust deeds. So we also submit nominations ourselves and, you know, really successful in getting the people that we need on the trust. So we've got a really good diverse group of trustees at the moment, 50% with Whakapapa Māori, over 50% women, just from a diversity perspective, good investment skills as well. So we work closely with the, you know, the Minister of Finance and our local MPs to make sure we get the right people to govern ourselves really well. Yeah, and and uh, representation and skills, crucial elements of that. Yeah. And uh, I think what you described is sort of managing up, if you like. Yeah, effectively it is. And it's, um, you know, so we, we, we're quite, quite clear because our trustees are not elected, they're not representational, but because there's kind of almost elements of representation in terms of our region and what we're going to do, now, I think our optimum board size is a little bit bigger than usual kind of boards because there is a little bit of representational kind of element in there as well. Yeah. And I guess when a trustee comes on, they're, they're excited to be there. They'll have, you guys have a significant profile. You know, you're a large asset in the area. 
the person coming onto the board will represent a community. Typically, they might, you know, say they might represent a certain ethnicity. In terms of they're not there for themselves or for their no. background, are they? They're, they're there for the greater good and they're yeah. there for the greater community. And in our Dutch, and we make it very clear, like you may come from Rotorua and be really passionate about Rotorua, and it's great that you've got those deep, you know, really connections into Rotorua, but it's very clear once you're appointed as our trustees, actually you're there representing the Bay of Plenty as a whole and you're there to do what's best for the Bay of Plenty as a whole. So we don't have segregated kind of budgets which says you know here's a grant budget for Rotorua versus a grants budget for Taranga ultimately we're here to do what's best for the Bay of Plenty but one of the things that we do do is we look you know on a quarterly kind of basis of where our granting goes across the region I mean make sure you know over a kind of a two or three year kind of staggered period that it's equitable across our region as well. Yeah and interesting roles so you know very much part of it focus on finance and, and investment the other part around having a lens and a focus on the community and understanding the issues you divide so just in terms of how you run you've got a real personal interest on the investment side haven't you is that and you've got the community grant elements covered by other members of the staff but is that the bit the, the growing the the challenge of growing the endowment bringing additional funds in is that the bit that excites you personally Probably, yeah. So not actually growing our endowment, that doesn't excite me. Actually making a difference excites me. And I think, you know, what's very clear to me is that, you know, we've granted over $100 million into our kind of, into our region over the last 30 years, but our key metrics we measure, you know, environmental degradation, youth unemployment, uh, housing inequality, et cetera, are going worse. So for me, it's clear that no matter how much we grant in our region, you know, it does good stuff, but it's not going to have that system change that we need. And actually where we need to get from a system change perspective is actually having that you know, that financial capital, that investment actually going into kind of things which care about the environment, our community, as well as investment returns. So that's probably my passion is not necessarily growing our $250 million investment base, but actually having the most impact we possibly can with that $250 million investment base to kind of help lead catal- you know, capital, I suppose, into a more sustainable future. Yeah, and uh, some of the uh, phrases that come to mind, like being the catalyzer, like walking in a humble way, side by side with community, all of those, and but also the big change I've seen in community trusts is around way more strategic approach to the way they operate. Like, is that would that that be the case for you guys and what you've seen elsewhere in the country? Yeah, I think so. Definitely, when I, we look across the board, a lot of philanthropics like ourselves, and you know, we're part of the community trust family, which has got five billion dollars investments, but you know there is a realisation that actually we're just not going to keep on doing the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff funding, actually, if we want to have, you know, make a difference in the community. And that's what trust and endowment and foundations should be doing. You know, ultimately, it's how to maximise your impact. Actually, that has, we need to look at more from a more of a system change perspective. We need to support more kind of advocacy. Um, we need to support more getting investments into the right space. So, you know, we see that across the board. We also know that, you know, we've got to get that system change we need, we still need to do some of that base level kind of granting. Like, you know, if we talk in some of our deprived regions, can you get system change into a deprived part of region if, you know, the people are struggling to kind of feed themselves and afford to live? So there's the base level that we're always going to do, but system change is definitely kind of coming through really strongly across the board. What's the one thing you've learned or a few things that you've learned in your eight years in, in the role? Like, you think back to Alistair Rhodes, who came into the role eight years ago. Yeah, I suppose a number of things I've learned. Uh, one of the things that's uh, when you get into an organisation like this, it's kind of to some extent it's very hard to leave, and, and that's why we've got really good staff tenure as well. Because 
ultimately everything we do is there to you know make the community a better place so you know very fortunate privileged position to be in a role where you know we can do a whole bunch of stuff with private equity try and make as much financial you know returns as we can but it's rewarding because whatever you know ex- extra returns we make gets kind of put back into our community so for me personally it's a you know very challenging role but it's a very kind of enjoyable kind of role as well and I think the other thing I've kind of learned is that you know we do have to have that base level of granting but granting is never going to fix the social issues out there if you think about the big issues around climate change and housing actually our granting is never going to make a difference or a material difference nor is the government's our balance sheet's not big enough nor is the government's it's that commercial capital you know accessing you know funds like KiwiSaver funds etc and getting them to invest long term in a purpose mission-based ethical kind of way into housing solutions that's what's going to make the difference so for me what I've kind of learned is what we you know the base stuff that we've always done in the past is really important we'll keep on doing that but it's not going to move the dial. And so if you really want to move the dial, it's actually about using your kind of balance sheet and using more, you know, investing and granting in terms of advocacy and support is what we need to do. And changing tack for a minute and taking you way back to your youth and your childhood, you've ended up focused on a for-purpose career and, and very much focused on making a difference to your community. But growing up, what was the sort of conversation happening in the family? Was that a focus around um, purpose for you? Kind of not at that granular detail but effectively you know I do think where I've ended up today has been you know has come from my past and I think you know I go back a bit earlier than that so when my great-granddad came to New Zealand he came to New Zealand from the UK at the age I think it was 13 by himself and his family and him you know to seek better you know opportunities for himself and he had that and so so did my grandfather so did my father so did myself but I look forward to the future generation and my children and go, actually, we'll have that, we'll have the same opportunity to swim in those rivers I used to swim in, the same job opportunities, the same opportunities in terms of the housing market. I don't know if they will. And I think, you know, that's part of that. And that upbringing is going, actually, that's why I'm in my role here, because I want to create better opportunities for my family. But I go back to, you know, my upbringing. So my dad was a head vet in the New Zealand Dairy Board. So you know, very well known across New Zealand, but his passion was really the environment and the outdoors. And that brought me, my passion around environment and climate change through. And then my mum was a public health nurse. And so again, you know, looking after the people came through. And I think it's just naturally kind of evolved in terms of what I'm doing today. It really kind of fits my upbringing and, you know, my passion and, and you know, to some extent, those deep values I've had. And when I started my career, I did a law and a commerce degree. And, you know, I spent five years at university because I probably didn't really know what I was going to do. I always thought I'd kind of run some business myself at some stage. But my career's, you know, I've worked overseas for large American companies like General Electric and Specsavers. I've worked for airlines and airports. And what I've learned from that kind of that career is that actually there's some great things in the commercial sector, like the understanding of the value of money, the understanding of actually how to build partnerships. But when you couple it with the not-for-profit sector, which has that, you know, that purpose, you know, that really purpose that aligns with your kind of values, that's where great things happen. And I think from a leadership perspective, if you can get people actually aligned with actually their own purpose, aligned with the organization's purpose, that's when you can actually have a really strong team as well. Yeah. So I had done your, one of your first jobs as in tax for Deloitte. Was that right? Was that straight from you leaving university? Yeah, so when you do a law and a commerce degree, you tend to kind of get snapped up by over one of the accounting te- account- large accounting firms or one of the large legal law firms to go into their kind of tax practice because they're looking for people with a commerce accounting background and also a legal kind of background at the same time. I had no passion for tax. So I never thought I'd go in there, but effectively it was a really good grounding because it paid for my chartered accountancy. It paid for my legal kind of profs to get done. 
And, you know, I have to admit I didn't enjoy any of those three years at all. Tax is definitely not a passion for me, but I had some really good kind of grounding in terms of, you know, work ethic, understanding how to write legal kind of opinions, understanding how to analyse accounts. So it gave me a really good foundation. And I think I did that because I knew it would allow me to explore my passions in the future. So I never thought I'd be a lawyer or an accountant, but it always gave me a backup that said, look, if all else fails, you know, if if I set up a business and it fails or something like that, I can go back and I can become an accountant or lawyer if I have to be. So it's really good grounding. And I still think, you know, I use a lot of those skills today still. But yeah, it definitely wasn't me. Six minute chargeable units. Uh, it's a challenge at the best of times. <laughs> um, and we touched on the the you know, airplanes overhead, and you've you know carved out a, a really good career in in sort of what did I say airline commerce almost, and in New Zealand for a large stretch of that for seven years. But how did that come into your scope? Yeah, so that was um, I came back from overseas and I actually set up a business with um, one of my friends, and um, we we're doing a, a you know producing a range of um, you know outdoor kind of education project, out, outdoor projects, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I needed kind of we needed some funding um, while that business was getting set up, so I ended up just contracting at Freedom Air, and it was just a really simple kind of contracting job. And I think life sometimes you know things just kind of fall on your lap. So I was a contractor there and then there, I think the company accountant actually ended up resigning. And so Freedom Air was a subsidiary for me in New Zealand through, flew about 12 jets across the Tasman. And so, yeah, I ended up like, they go, oh, could you look after the company accountant role while we kind of appoint a new person into that role? And I was like, well, I'm not in the company accountant, but I'll do it for a couple of months. And then I was in that role and then there are, their finance manager ended up resigning and they were like, oh, can you pick up that role? And I was like, well, I'm not really a finance manager, but I'll double or triple my charge out rate and I can kind of do that role as well. So I ended up by kind of chance working there. And one of the good things about working there is the GM in charge of at the time, Stephen Jones, ended up being the head of strategy at Air New Zealand. And I suppose my passion was never around the financial side of things. I ended up looking after finance for the Tasman Pacific Airlines, which is a large airline group across Air New Zealand. Um, but pretty much most of that time, I might have been in that role for three years, I was conned out of that role to look after a strategic project. So doing all the Tasman kind of changes, working with Christopher Luxon to kind of really redo the international kind of airline. I mean, then ended up looking after the ancillary revenue kind of part of that business as well, which is where most airlines make money. But you know, what it taught me, I think, working at in New Zealand actually was the value of actually how to understand and really drive a good strategy. And that's come through the rest of my career. And when I took the role at Bay Trust, I was like, well, I don't really know much about this uh, sort of not-for-profit endowment foundation model. But I was like, well, actually, all it is is really having a really good strategy about actually how to make money. And I can do that from an investment perspective because I've got a good background on that. But then you have to have another strategy about actually how to distribute that money as well. So you have kind of two overlapping kind of strategies. And when I first started Bay Trust, I kind of almost saw them as quite separate but the more I worked there, the more they effectively they came together and go, actually, the best strategy is one in the middle where actually you are using your investments to also make impact at the same time. So I learned a lot. You know, I worked with some fantastic people at New Zealand, like, uh, as I said, Stephen Jones, the head of strategy, Rob Five, Christopher Luxon, and they had the resources. So one of the projects I was pulled aside, four of us were like pretty much, you know, I think it was nine months of unlimited resources and money to, you know, reimagine the Tasman airline, which had lost money for 12 years in a row before we kind of actually, you know, did a project on it. So a lot of those skills and techniques of how to drive really good strategy, I learned from them and working with, you know, experts like McKinsey, et cetera, has translated into my career. And that's probably my happy space is thinking about the future and talking about the future and that strategy. It's not about the business as usual kind of granting or the details. That's not where I add value. My value is kind of more thinking about the future and how actually how to get there. 
Yeah. And so a couple of years as CEO of Rotorua Airport as well. And when that role came up at Bay Trust, like take yourself back there, getting hitting home and as maybe speaking to your partner or talking to friends and family, was it something you sort of stumbled across to sit in this end? Oh, so very much. So I'd been at Rotorua Airport for two years. And I kind of said when I took that role, it was a good opportunity to move from Auckland Rat Race down to kind of the Bay of Plenty, which I always knew was a fantastic place to kind of raise a child. They had some big challenges at that airport at that stage in terms of they were trying to do international flights and it wasn't working and it was costing them millions of dollars a year. But I'd been in that role for two years and there was a massive opportunity and there still is to actually have a consolidated airport strategy around the Bay of Plenty region. There's like four or five airports operating, all doing their own thing. And just from an economics perspective, it made no sense. But I ended up getting quite frustrated with actually trying to deal with the uh, political kind of tensions of uh, actually being a CCO, you know, reporting through to the council and they had their political views, which weren't necessarily aligned with my strategic views. But what I learned in that role was actually, if you think about a regional airport in New Zealand, most of them don't cover the cost of capital. They're there for other regional benefits as well, like employment, tourism, etc. So it started getting me to understand that kind of model, almost that impact investment model where you're investing in things, not just straight for financial returns. You know, councils invest in their regional airports, not straight for financial returns, but for those other wider regional kind of economic benefits. So yeah, I was doing that and I hadn't, hadn't actively started looking for another role at that stage. And then I think my mum might have seen it in the Sunday Star Times, which was with a paper that used to exist here, just an advertisement for this. And she sent it to me and I came up and I looked at it and I was like, I don't really know much about this at all. And then I suppose... As I said earlier on, the more I looked at it, I was like, well, actually, it's Bay of Plenty wide, which I really enjoy because I think the sum of the Bay of Plenty is bigger than the individual hearts. It's around making a difference to the community using our investments to have, you know, more of an impact rather than just straight financial return. That kind of aligns with what I do. And then I thought, well, actually, you know, it's leading a team. Um, you know, I really enjoy leading a team and you just have to have two complementary strategies. Uh, all I have to do is develop my thinking about a how a strategy of how to distribute money as well as a strategy of how to you know, make money. So I you know, came into that role and I've enjoyed the last, you know, six, seven years immensely. It's, um, you know, sort of by far the most enjoyable role I ever have because, you know, whatever we do is about that make, making a community a better place. And I think for me, you know, I want to make a better place for our children, our children's children in the future as well. So it really resonates strongly with me. Yeah. And I imagine when you were, you know, pitching to the trustees that you would have probably given quite a different option to them than may have been the other candidates in terms of your commercial and strategic value. Oh, definitely. I think previously in a lot of the other trusts have, you know, got very much grant kind of managers. So my model I pitched was, you know, if you want a CEO, it is actually about a strategy. It's a strategic kind of role, a strategic leadership role. And I'm going to be challenging and pushing kind of people here. And I think I said to my chair once I got the role, I said, look, one of my KPIs should be that I want two of our trustees, of our 12 trustees at that time, to kind of complain about me by the end of the year because otherwise I'm not actually pushing you guys hard enough. It's really easy in these roles to do the same thing year after year. I think there's a little bit of lack of kind of accountability. So I deliberately said, you know, if I'm doing the same thing, you know, that's not what you employed me for. You employed me to kind of as a change agent and change is going to be challenging for people. So I kind of pushed her and said, look, yeah, actually – a couple of trustees are complaining and pushing you guys too hard. That's a good space to be. Like when you get out of bed in the morning, are you really focused on what you'll achieve that day and you want to get to the to that quickly? Like you're less bothered about the niceties of life and people being being uh, being sort of conciliatory towards you? Are you really focused on the game, getting it done? I think you have to focus on both, right? Because you actually do have to, you know, work. The only way we can really make an impact with is with working with kind of partners, whether it's regional councils, councils, other key stakeholders, et cetera. 
So part of that kind of strategy is, you know, forming those partnerships and relationships and making sure that, you know, we respect them and they respect us as well. So for me, you know, it's good to have a team and good to have trustees that slow me down. And, you know, I wouldn't want to have a group of trustees and staff all like myself because we would just push too hard and probably break things. <laughs> and so I do need to have that team around me that kind of pulls me kind of back a little bit and slows me down and goes, yep, we need to build those relationships, et cetera, kind of first. So I think, you know, you need to do a little bit of both, to be honest. Yeah, and, and one of the drains of your strategy when you walked in was around impact investing, and let's pick up on that now. So it's been around forever, impact investing, although maybe not called that. been around a long time. You've been chair of Impact Investing Network, and part of the, as I see from a slight distance, is one of the things is defining it, another thing, promoting it, and then create creating opportunity or building the capacity around it tell us about that role because that's a voluntary role isn't it yeah it's a voluntary role so i'm the chair of the impact investment network aotearoa which is effectively the national advisory board for impact investing in new zealand and obviously impact investing uh, most people on the call probably know is where we're looking to get that you know measurable social environmental kind of impact alongside a financial return and i've been in that role a kind of couple of years now and it is something really aligns strongly with what i believe in and i think you know, when I go back to it, you're right, you know, impact investing, it was called different things, but it's been around for generations. I go back to the, you know, early days in England where, you know, those those factories, they didn't just actually, you know, employ people. They built the houses for the people. They built actually schools for the people. And it's the same thing here in terms of our Māori iwi kind of communities. They don't just think about actually the employment. It's those wider kind of benefits at the same time. So impact investing is a kind of term that's been created over the last 10 years, but it has always been around. You know, my kind of personal belief is that capitalism just diverted too much to focusing on profit and not looking at those wider impacts over the last 50 years. And we need to kind of change capitalism back to be a bit more kind of inclusive in nature. So, you know, it does go, well, actually, there is a clear cost of greenhouse gas emissions, which haven't actually ever been kind of costed in. Actually, there is a social license that that organisation needs to kind of understand and what are the wider impacts of those kind of organisations on the community. So our National Advisory Board or the Impact Investment Network in New Zealand, as you said, it's there to connect, educate and advocate and grow the impact investment ecosystem in New Zealand. And we'd like to think, I suppose, that you know maybe there wouldn't be a role for us in five or ten years' time. So if we can get all, if we can be that catalyst and help transition to a truly sustainable finance ecosystem, then do you really need you know organisations that is focused on impact investment? Potentially not. And so, but I think at this stage we clearly do. We need to kind of show and prove that actually you can get really good financial returns and have good impact at the same time. We need to show people that actually you can measure this kind of impact and actually that people really care about the impact. So if you, you know, if you're a KiwiSaver fund manager being able to communicate to your investors uh, what impact you're having, or if you're a company being able to communicate, actually it's just not financial return, it's what impact we're having on a community. I think it's going to be crucial going forward to get kind of further and further investment. So our job is to kind of grow it and get it to that stage where hopefully you know, the most of the ecosystem can know and understand and there's enough kind of track record to see it. it's working really well. And then once we get to that sustainable finance kind of ecosystem, then do we need a role in five or 10 years' time? Hopefully not. Yeah. And there's some great stuff in impact investing around innovation. So sort of creating a pathway for investments maybe to become more enterprises, to become more commercial and derive more return. But a bit that probably excites me is around the innovation. So if it's sort of depending on the um, where the funding's come from, it could do some really innovative stuff that could be transformative for the environment and or society without there have been a huge pressure pressure to return funds to shareholders. But that's a bit that probably excites me. How about yourself? 
Yeah, I think for me, it's that if many impact investors like ourselves and other trusts and foundations, etc., have the, you know, willing that they really want to see the impact, impact almost first. And it's not necessarily lowering your, lowering your return expectations, but it's about taking more, like the willingness to take a little bit more risk. And I think for me, that's, that's the interesting bit. So if we want to get commercial capital into the sector, right, it needs to have an acceptable commercially based return. So I don't think we should be compromising that much on the return, but sometimes we need to take a bit more risk and be that first mover and go, look, we'll set this up, we'll establish it, we'll show the track record of three to, over three to five years' time. So in three to five years' time, actually, the commercial investors can come and go, oh, this is just a really good you know, commercial investment with really good positive impact at the same time. And then they can follow on onto our investor, into that investment and we can take our money out and invest into something else. So I think it's probably less return compromise but more willingness to embrace and take a bit more risk to help prove that kind of, you know, to help prove kind of proof of concept, I think. Yeah, and we can't redo history, but just I'm taking you back to the when the community finance or the community banks were being dissolved and, and the funds were going into these community trusts. Would question mark would it have been better to actually um, set those community banks up as as social enterprises and keep deriving the uh, returns, or actually some half of them may have fallen over by now, and uh, actually we've ended up in a good space with you know close to five billion. New Zealand dollars invested and, and you know, making yeah, a yeah. difference. It's really hard to say. So one of the community trusts, which was the uh, Taranaki, which is now called Toy Foundation, they still, they never sold their banks. So they still own the TSB Bank in New Zealand. And, you know, they've done well from a, you know, capital kind of return perspective in terms of owning that bank. Would have it been good for the ecosystem as a whole? I do believe that we needed to get more capital into the banking system in New Zealand and those trusts weren't able to kind of put that capital in. So I think there had to be some kind of deregulation, but, you know, could have the trust alone 30 or 40% of that kind of model? Potentially. It's a hard one to know. I think what I do know is, and do we fundamentally believe at the moment, is that the banking system in New Zealand dominated by the four big Australian banks that have their Australian rules. I don't think it is actually working that well for New Zealand Inc. as a whole. They don't know our communities as well as they should do. They struggle to lend to Māori, iwi, you know, where you can't take security kind of over the land. They are making very, very high profits in terms of actually their capital over here. And so actually having some bigger, you know, banks, you know, whether it's a Kiwi Bank or TSB, but I think they need to somehow be listed and you know have more capital into those banks that have a bit of more of a kind of social mandate to kind of compete a bit more aggressively against those australian banks would be really kind of beneficial yeah i can see the benefit of that and just focusing on alistair as a, a leader you as a leader and you know in terms of how you operate and whether that's changed or not but you're quite structured are you you see you divide your time up between strategy people and other how does alistair operate I saw this bit of analysis. So it might have been on a leadership course I did about five years ago, and it's called the. It's kind of like called the time value of money, and basically it kind of divides your time into kind of four quadrants and said like there's a lot of there's a lot of people that spend a lot of their time on doing things that kind of really aren't kind of important and really kind of add no kind of value as well, and you know you kind of got to work through the kind of quadrant and where it is that you really kind of create value is focusing on things that are really important but not kind of urgent. And so I'll probably give you an example of what I mean by that. But when I was in the Air New Zealand airline days, if there was a large, say, you know, uh, airline disruption, a customer disruption, right, it's really important, really urgent to get those people from wherever they're disrupted to back on another flight and get them to their final destination. Does that really create much long-term value? Probably not because they're still going to be pissed off that they got disrupted in the first place. 
where there's a real lot of value is three months after that incident where it's not urgent anymore evaluating what actually caused that incident and understanding what caused it which might have been an engineering issue say at the Christchurch engineering base fix that actually that creates long-term value yeah so I deliberately try and structure my time to spend a lot of it on things that aren't urgent but are really really kind of important and I think too many people you know just get trapped on in terms of the cycle of always doing things that are urgent and important and they don't create value so true long-term value is created now when you think long term if you're an individual thinking now at the age of say if you're 30 about what are you going to do in terms of retirement and KiwiSaver etc actually that's going to that's not urgent but that's really important. That's going to create immense long-term value. So I'm quite structured in terms of making sure, and it's my happy place to be. I spend a lot of time actually doing the stuff that it's actually kind of long-term, but making sure I've got a team, team, team that can kind of look after the, you know, the urgent, important stuff at the same time. And the future for Bay Trust, and what's your vision for the for the area for the Bay of Plenty? I'd love to hear that. Yeah, so our future of Bay Trust. So we have defined our purpose as accelerating bold, meaningful change ensuring the Bay of Plenty and our communities flourish. And that is quite a action oriented purpose statement. So we'll be lifting our granting. So we grant about $8 million a year into more of a strategic kind of area. So less kind of ambulance at the bottom of the cliff, granting more strategic granting, especially around things like environmental initiatives and climate change and housing opportunities as well. But when I kind of think about long-term for the trust, it's actually about creating those opportunities where commercial capital can follow us. So, We've invested in housing solutions for the last eight or nine years, you know, through investing in kind of funds, but doing direct investment ourselves into chips, et cetera, et cetera. But where we're heading, and I think, you know, we're going to do this in other sectors as well from a housing perspective is going, that's all well and good, but that only create that like takes our 5 million and just limits it to 5 million. What we've done at the moment and what we're hopefully going to launch in the next couple of months is creating a housing equity fund for the Bay of Plenty where our capital combined with other philanthropic and other you know, council capital will take out 10 million or end up being 50 million. We'll combine it with debt, potentially KiwiSaver debt, debt to $100 million and set up in a fund and structure that says, look, you can invest into the terms of long term, you know, really good mission based housing solutions, which are good for our community and good for our people and get a good commercial return. And hopefully in three to five years time, we're at a stage where, you know, those KiwiSaver investors can invest equity into that. And I'd like to be at a stage where, you know, say a KiwiSaver, because that's where the big capital in New Zealand is, can go out to the members and say, look, you're based in the Bay of Plenty. Would you like to allocate 1% or 2% of your KiwiSaver balance to a local Bay of Plenty housing-based fund, doing great things in your community and getting have us a really good, strong track record to return? So I think, you know, we're doing that in the housing space, and I think the next one will do it, look to do something in the climate change environmental space. But, you know, creating funds or structures that are investable for other commercial entities, you know, say the large, you know, whether it's a Foresight Bar or a Craig's or a KiwiSaver fund, getting them involved right at the start to help co-design so that they could potentially invest down the track in the future when we've got the strong track record kind of established. So that's kind of where I see Bay Trust kind of leading the place because we know our granting is not going to make a difference. When we survey our community, it's climate change and housing, et cetera, the big issues, and our granting alone is never going to make a difference in that space. Yeah, and that's learnings you've had from the research and just being out there in the community as well wonderful and in terms of your your role in that so you've been in the role eight years yeah on a personal note like you obviously you you got your chairman role and you're fully involved in impact investing but continuity for the bay for bay trust that even come up as an issue in your mind yeah yeah we have a lot of discussions around you know not being a large team we're only sort of five six of us in a team it's hard to have proper succession planning when you've got a small team like that but we all have a number of discussions on that but also kind of leave coverage so you know what would happen if I get hit in the bus I like to think that I've got 
kind of mana enhancing leadership. So if I get hit by the bus, actually, there shouldn't be any drop off in the performance of Bay Trust. Actually, the, all the team would kind of step up and you shouldn't even notice I've, I've actually gone. So we take kind of that mentality coming through. And then for me personally, you know, as a city, I've been there. I gave a commitment when I took the role, I'd be there somewhere between five and kind of 10 years. I still think there's a little bit to achieve. You know, I want to get this housing equity fund across the line, maybe an environmental fund, like something like that, get a lot across the line. And then, you know, just explore other opportunities. As you said, I'm doing this chair role. I think the best, there's a few more kind of board appointment roles kind of coming up that I might be interested in as well. And just explore those and make sure I've got the capacity and capability in the team that says that, you know, when the right time for me to leave is or when if I get hit by a bus, that Bay Trust can continue as strong, if not strong, without me in the chair, in the role. Wonderful. Also, thank you very much for joining me on Purposely. No worries at all. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do. 